our sermon series for the summer is called, What Does the Bible Say About? And with this series, what we're doing is we're answering a different question each week. What does the Bible say about whatever that topic is? The first week, we asked, what does the Bible say about itself? The second week, we asked, what does the Bible say about science? The next week, Jack talked about what the Bible says about rest. Last week, we were at the convention. And this week, we are talking about what does the Bible say about the Declaration of Independence. Now, I'll explain what, that, what I mean by that in a second. But this is the last Sunday in which the staff has generated the topic. Because what we want to do is talk, answer questions that you have about what the Bible says. And that is why you have one of these sheets in your bulletin. And we would encourage you to write down something in there or multiple things, anything you would like to hear about. We will be answering those questions either in the sermon or through our live broadcast on Facebook and YouTube. Last week, we, on Thursday, we talked about what the Bible says about UFOs and aliens. That was a fun discussion. And so, really, anything. Curious, you guys have asked some pretty serious topics on this. You've also asked about aliens. And so, um, that's a, those are all acceptable. So, whatever you'd like to put in, we encourage you to put some more in. Um, and just drop them in the same place where you put your... Um, connection card. If you're online, there's a button in the digital sanctuary that you can press and it'll take you to an online version of this. Today is the 4th of July, and so uh, we are talking about what does the Bible say about the Declaration of Independence, which was passed 245 years ago today. Now, obviously, it was 245 years old, and that means that it was written 1,700 years after the New Testament was done being written. So the easy answer is nothing. The Bible says nothing about the Declaration of Independence. But I'm not talking about the document. I'm talking about the, 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 the perspective of the document. And we're talking about this today because this year <laughs> I have been uh, praying and, and uh, um, thinking about this Sunday for a year, ever since I found out that the 4th of July was going to be on a Sunday, because days like this, to be quite honest, make me nervous as a pastor. They make me nervous. I'll tell you why. So I, I'm very, very glad that God put me where he did, and I'm very um, grateful for the privileges in, uh, that I have, and I'm very grateful for the people that I know who have um, made sacrifices to make that happen. My brother is currently on deployment in the Navy. We're not allowed to know where, um, but he is gone for a year. Um, my son is named after my great uncle, who was a pilot over Burma in World War II. Um, and actually, you may not, I don't know if you know this, if I, you've been here when I've talked about this before, but my first career path was in politics. Uh, I studied government in uh, my undergrad, and I worked for the Washington State Legislature. And there was actually, and I was, I was pretty well qualified for a career in that area, and there was a point at which I made the decision to move from politics into serving the church. And, and even when I, when I went to seminary, I was still studying political theology because I recognized then that there is, this, there is just this interesting overlap in America that needs to be navigated well. And I start to get nervous whenever uh, our worship of God and our celebration of our country start to overlap, not because one is good and one is bad, but because it needs to be handled well. Because the thing is, I, I, like I said, I am um, glad to be where I am, and, and I think there is a lot to celebrate today. But even a good thing can be an idol. In fact, good things are the most tempting idols. And so if we are going to celebrate something that's important to us, we need to be able to celebrate, as Christians, we need to celebrate it in a faithful way. 
Uh, and that's what this sermon is about, is about how do we celebrate well as faithful believers in Jesus. And this is something we have to be thoughtful about because of the way we've traditionally handled this in America. Um, we're asking this question because, first of all, American Christians have always struggled with the line between patriotism and idolatry. And I'm not saying that patriotism is idolatry. I'm saying there's a, there's a line that can be crossed. Uh, and if you're curious about that, ask a missionary. I encourage you to ask a missionary if there's something different about how Americans talk about Christianity. Because there is. And there's something that doesn't transfer. There's part of it that just doesn't transfer. I'll give you a couple of statistics. A recent survey came out saying that the majority of Protestant pastors are concerned that their countries worship America above God. The majority of the Protestant pastors right now are concerned that their congregations might worship their country above God. Another survey came out saying that 68% of white evangelicals believe that the Declaration of Independence and the American Constitution are divinely inspired documents. Now, here's the thing, okay? I believe the American Constitution and the Declaration of Independence are absolutely world-changing documents, some of the greatest accomplishments in, in politics, in, in governance, that, in, in human history. But that is not the same as saying they're divinely inspired. Do you see a line that has been crossed like even a good thing if you take it to the wrong place, can be idolatry. And so what I want to be able to do is to celebrate today in a way that is, is good. And if we're going to do that, if we're going to, be, if we're going to express faithful patriotism, which I think is a good thing, the first thing is, what, what does faithful patriotism look like, look like? Well, it celebrates the ways our nation serves the values of the kingdom of God. It doesn't celebrate our country for its own sake as if our country was just absolutely good no matter what but it celebrates the way our nation, the way our heritage has served the kingdom of God. The way it does serve the kingdom of God. What is good about it? As opposed to just saying it is good. And so we'll support everything about it. We, so we celebrate what is good about it in terms of the kingdom. That's what, keeps, that's what keeps us focused on the kingdom, what keeps God above all, is because we celebrate it because it is good. Not simply because it's ours. Does that make sense? That, that's faith. that means that we're still keeping the kingdom central and we celebrate things that are good in kingdom terms. And I believe that with that perspective, we can celebrate today. I'm planning on celebrating today. Uh, of course, we live about a block and a half away from the fireworks display, so we're going to celebrate whether we want to or not. But I'm planning on celebrating today. So how do we do that? Well, the first thing that we need to do in order to be able to celebrate well, in order to be able to celebrate our nation for the way it serves the kingdom is we need to be able to tell the difference. We need to be able to tell. It requires us to know the difference between American values and kingdom values because there is overlap. There is, there is a connection there, but they're not exactly the same thing. You know what a Venn diagram is? There are two circles and there's an overlap. And this is, there is overlap and there is things that don't overlap. And what we need to do is to be able to celebrate the things that are in common because we're ultimately celebrating God and His kingdom and His providence for us. So hopefully, what I will accomplish through all of this is to give you a way to celebrate passionately today, enthusiastically today, and faithfully as a member of the kingdom of heaven. So, what we're going to do is we're going to take the central, most influential claim of the Declaration of Independence, and we're going to compare that to the Bible because... The central, most influential claim of, in the Declaration of Independence is on the Bible's turf. It is a claim about God, 
is a claim about how and why he created us and, and how we're supposed to live as a result of that. That is biblical territory. Okay? So, when the list of abuses from the Great Britain to America, that's not totally everything. But that claim, and here's the claim that I'm talking about. This is, if you have any of it memorized, this is what you have memorized. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is a theological claim. That is a claim about God and humanity and the relationship between us and Him and us and each other. And what we're going to do today is we're going to ask, how well does that line up with what's revealed in Scripture? Because I know for me, for a very long time, I just kind of treated that as Scripture. Like that just forms my idea of what God does. Yes, that's true. But we need to... We need to Take a closer look. So we're going to take it chunk by chunk. And the first chunk we're going to look at is the opening claim. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That is basically saying, the things I'm about to say are so obvious that I don't even need to give you evidence. Okay? Two plus two is four. That's self-evident. I don't need to make a case for it, right? Squares cannot be circles. Don't even need to make a case for it, right? Star Wars is better than Star Trek, right? Don't even need to, don't even need to make a case for it. Ford over Chevy. Um, Beavers, no, sorry. I'm from Washington. There's no reason for me to get in that fight. But to be self-evident is something we don't even need to... He's like, okay, I'm going to say these things, and you're already going to know that they're true. Okay? Now, there's a couple of reasons why Thomas Jefferson wrote it that way and starts that way. First of all, the point of the Declaration of Independence is to state the case of the uh, American colonies to the nations of the world which come, have different bases and di- different religious identities. So they're trying to start on common ground. No matter what, whether you're a Catholic nation or a Protestant nation or whatever you are, you'll be able to agree these things are obvious. We don't need to have anything else in common. It's just obvious. But the reason why, but, but another reason why Thomas Jefferson wrote it this way is also because Thomas Jefferson wasn't a Christian. Thomas Jefferson was a deist which means he believed that God started the world spinning and then walked away and didn't interfere. He actually published, he either made, or I think he actually published, a copy of the, new, of the Gospels where he edited out all of the miracles and the resurrection. Because he thought Jesus taught some good things, but none of those miracles were true. Because he didn't believe that God actually intervened in the world. So, being, not being a Christian, being a deist, for him, it wasn't a matter of finding something revealed in Scripture. He, he believed, like, Human reason just reveals the things that I believe. They're just obviously true because my reasoning is right. And so these things are self-evident. And that logic has been a, is a big part of, our, of modern liberalism, small l liberalism, like Western countries that are based on that heritage of that view of humanity. Okay? Um, that just, that pe- we believe it's obvious. We can take it for granted that people are made equal. And here's the problem. Go with me here, because you might think I'm a horrible person for a second, but go with me here. Um, that's not actually self-evident. Equality is not self-evident. We are actually unequal in every measurable way. Why would it occur to anybody that we were all equal? Maybe one thing that matters about a person that we all share in equally. One thing that we value in people... Oh, sorry, I've got an, I talked over an answer. A soul. Well, okay, but you have to believe in a soul first. And you can't measure that. You can't measure that, right? Or, or what, but do we actually go around and say, hey, that person has a nice soul? 
right? Like, no, the things that we, this is why we struggle with equality, because the things that actually matter to us are not distributed equally among us. There is no thing that we actually value that in which we are equal. We are not equally intelligent. We're not equally strong. We're not equally wealthy. We're not equally popular. We're not equally attractive. Like, we're not, where would you get the idea that we're equal? It's not self-evident. Which is why no culture has ever said that about humanity that wasn't influenced by the gospel. No culture has ever said people were equal that had not been influenced by the gospel. Because that perspective actually comes from the gospel. It actually comes from scripture. Human equality, I absolutely believe in it. But it is not self-evident. It is revealed to us. And that's an important distinction to make. And to recognize, I read a, I read a book recently, I've mentioned it, I think a couple of times, where uh, uh, there's a, um, an agnostic who says, I don't believe that Jesus is God, but I've realized, he's a historian, he said, I've realized that everything I believe about right and wrong comes from Christianity. And the main root of that is this idea that all people are equal. Like, that's not evident. That comes from, um, that comes from the revelation. So the reason equality seems self-evident is because our culture is shaped by the gospel. Thomas Jefferson, it was obvious to Thomas Jefferson, and he could take it for granted that other people would agree to, with that, because he was raised in a culture deeply shaped by the gospel, and he was writing to people in cultures deeply shaped by the gospel, and it was their common language. The, it, this idea of equality comes from the revelation of God. We, we sometimes miss that, though, because the Declaration of Independence frames it in a different term. It uses the term equality, and that's not quite how the Bible talks about it. So let's look at that part, the claim that all men are created equal. Now, bringing in the creation language make, is a clear kind of signpost for us to look at human, uh, the creation narrative in Scripture. So let's look at what the Bible says uh, in reference to this claim. The Bible says, during the creation week, God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's two notable differences in, the, those, in the, those quotes. First of all, you notice that in, in Scripture, in, in Genesis, it's already saying male and female. Right? Now, one of the debates that people will have is what did, the frame, what did the writers of the Declaration of Independence mean when they said men are created equal? Because for some, that's an exclusive term, and for some people, that was just a term for all of humanity. But the Bible is clear. Men and women are made in the image of God. And it's starting at the beginning of humanity, which means that all people are made in the image of God. But notice, what word does not appear in Genesis? Equal. It doesn't say God made them equal. Because that is actually the, uh, the idea of equality is a consequence of a much bigger, more powerful claim that the Bible is making. The Bible is saying that we are made in the image of God. Now, we've lost the context for what that means, but in the ancient world, being made, bearing the image of God meant you were a big deal. Because only kings were made in the image of God. That was how they, they held on to their power. They'd say, hey, I am a representative of our God. I'm his image on earth, so listen to me, because if you disobey me, you're disobeying our God. I bear responsibility, authority from him. I am his representative. So it is a huge claim when the Bible says all people are made in the image of God. 
It's not, it, it is an enormous claim, and it is made at the very beginning of humanity, which means it is true of everyone that is descended from the beginning of humanity, and it is made of both genders, which means it really is everybody descended from humanity. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or woman. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what class you are. You all bear the image of God. As a consequence of the fact that we all bear the image of God, that means we are all equal because that's the thing that makes us valuable is the fact that we bear the image of God, and that is equal in all of us. Our intelligence, or our net worth, or our, our strength, or any of those other things, they may not be the same among all of us, but the fact that we bear the image of God, that is the same in every single person. So, human beings are equal because they are all made in the image of God. But notice, to say that a person is made in the image of God is to make a bigger claim than to just say that they're equal with their, each other. Because to say that you're, we're all equal doesn't tell you how valuable we are. It just tells you we're all the same value. We could all be worth nothing, but as long as we're all worth nothing, we're equal. Right? All that says is we're all in the same boat. It doesn't tell you where the boat's going or whether it has holes in it. Right? To say that we're all made in the image of God is to make a more powerful claim. And here's how we see James use that to, to make a point about the way we talk about each other. He says, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. You should not praise God and curse people who are made in His image. They bear His image. They are, they are worth more than that. They have a dignity. So, so it's not enough to just treat everybody equally, because then you could just curse everybody. As long as you curse everybody the same, you're fine. But everybody has an inherent worth because they bear the image of God. That is a bigger and more powerful claim. Because here's the thing. To say that you're equal is a statement of relative value. It means you're, whatever you're worth, you're worth the same as everybody else. Right? But to say that you're made in the image of God is to say you have absolute value. That you are worth what God says you're worth. You are worth what He made you to be worth. To put a point on it, you're worth what He paid for you, which is the blood of His Son. So all of this, see, talking about equality puts us in a rat race to try, and, and it's a matter of, am, is there anybody ahead of me? I don't want anybody ahead of me. I'm, not so, I'm okay with there being people behind me in this rat race, but I don't want anybody ahead of me. Right? And it's a competitive. But what Scripture says is there is no competition. You simply are made in the image of God. You have inherent worth. Period. doesn't matter what else there is about you. doesn't matter what you're good at, what you're bad at, what you have, what you don't have. You simply have worth. Your value is not relative. It is absolute. Nothing can change it. You have worth. And that is an incredibly powerful claim. Now, the Declaration of Independence does a good job of, of setting a groundwork for that in a political document. But the gospel goes further and says you have worth. Now, here's the thing, though. We are equal. We are still equal, which means not only do you have this absolute worth, but everyone else has this absolute worth. And this is where we really get into the rub with the uh, American mindset. This is where we really need to learn to, to draw the line and to stay on the Christian side of it. Because this is also the thing that I think people, that I've most often seen people read into the Bible. That people are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. 
Now, this is the most theological part of the Declaration of Independence and the way we've used it now. It is really important for people to say, God gave us rights. I've seen memes go across Facebook. One of them was uh, George Washington talking to a kid and saying, remember, the government doesn't give you your rights. The government acknowledges rights that God gave you. And that is really important to the, the mythos of our, of, our, of our values, that I have these rights. The government didn't give them to me. I have them, and the, a good government will recognize them. And this is our attitude. And so I've actually seen, uh, we, were, we studied the Law of Moses in the fall, and I read a book that talked about the Ten Commandments being the Bill of Rights in the Old Testament, and the idea that, that God does give us rights in the Old Testament. So let's examine that claim. First of all, let's clarify what a right is. A right is a moral or legal entitlement to have or obtain something or to act in a certain way. If you ha- a right is something you have that no one is allowed to take from you. Okay? You have it. It's an entitlement. You are entitled to these things. No one can take them, take them from you. And when we, when we declare rights, we typically say things like this. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. You see those statements. These things shall not be done to the people. The people have these rights. They are entitled to these things. You shall not take them from them. Right? That's the language of rights. And I search in vain for that kind of language in Scripture. I've heard the Ten Commandments described as the, as the ancient Hebrew Bill of Rights, but there is a difference in the, the language of the Ten Commandments. Here's what the Ten Commandments say. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it whole, by keeping it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet. Do you notice the difference? That the commands of Scripture are commands to me of how I treat others. And there is no place in Scripture where God says, here are the things you are entitled to. Here are the things that no one is allowed to take from you. It never actually says that in Scripture. What we find as we look in Scripture to what is actually revealed, right? We believe that Scripture shows us what God has done and what God has told us and what God has given us. Scripture is our authority for that. And what we find is that God does not give His people rights. He gives them responsibilities. He gives His people responsibilities. You shall. He doesn't, he doesn't talk about the rights of foreigners in Israel. He tells the Israelites, you shall love your neighbor. You shall love foreigners in your midst. Right? To protect them, he speaks to the Israelites and says, this is your responsibility. Now, what happens, what the, the rights language in our government, what that comes from is that is an attempt and, and a... And a probably one of our most successful attempts to put this kind of behavior into law. Because ultimately, you have to have things you can enforce. And that's why I'm not trying to criticize the Declaration of Independence or the American Constitution or the Bill of Rights because they're trying to do something different. They're trying to set up a structure under which people can live regardless of what they believe about God and regardless of whether they care about obeying Him. And it, it is very valuable in that regard. And I'm very glad for it. What I'm saying is we shouldn't get our theology 
from this document that it was designed to work regardless of what he believed in God or not. We get our theology, we get our understanding of God and his commands for us from Scripture. And what Scripture says is that we're given responsibilities, not rights. Because if God was a God of, of rights, of giving us entitlements, it would be really hard to make sense of some of the things that Jesus says. For instance, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. That, that going a mile, going two miles thing, that was something that happened with Roman soldiers. That was a government thing. That was like, like soldiers kind of like quartering in your house, which is in the Bill of Rights. Because if they try and make you carry their pack for a mile, go an extra mile with them. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This is what Jesus tells us. He doesn't say stand up for your rights. He doesn't say stand up for your entitlements. He says make sacrifices for others. Give to others. Give more than you have to. More than what's required. Because our mission as Christians is not to defend our own divine image, but to honor the divine image in others. And when we take the perspective of rights and we bring it into our faith and our relationship with God and our relationship with other people, what ends up happening is we spend all of our time defending my entitlement, defending my church, defending what I get and no one else should have to take from me. And that's not the example that Jesus set. Because ultimately, if we're looking at what it means to bear the image of God, who is the perfect example of that? The perfect image of God, which is Jesus Christ. And Jesus did not come to make it clear to everyone exactly the dignity he was entitled to as the Son of God. Right? That was not his approach. He came and gave up dignity to which he was entitled in order to lift up people that bore the image of God and had been left in the dirt. And so he was, his attitude was not one of entitlement, but one of compassion and sacrifice for others. He honored the divine image in others, even as he was himself God. And that's the example that we're called to follow. The last part of this section of the Declaration of Independence says that among those rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now again, I am not trying to criticize the, these documents or the Declaration of Independence for what it is meant to be. The Declaration of Independence is one of the most impactful documents in human politics, and it's again, an incredible thing that I'm going to celebrate today. Okay? And the most incredible thing that it did was it created space for people to choose for themselves the life they were going to pursue and how they were going to serve God. So that the government was no longer in the business of deciding for you what your, the purpose of your life was going to be or how you were going to serve God. That was left up to people, and I rejoice at the freedom that that created. And it is because it says that we are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is an incredible thing, and I'm celebrating that freedom today. That is a very good thing. Where it can turn problematic is if we take this as a religious document and we say, that means that I am supposed to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. That I am entitled, personally, to life, liberty, and happiness. That that is actually supposed to be my value system. As American Christians, we often take our values from here. The problem is that as bearers of, the, of God's image, we are actually called to pursue godliness above all. We are called to pursue godliness. See, when we enter the pursuit of happiness, 
We enter the pursuit of the things that we think will make us happy, and those things are always in limited supply. And that creates this competition. This, that creates this conflict. That creates this anxiety, this stress that we all live under. Because we think that we might miss out on our happiness if we don't get enough before someone else does. And Jesus speaks directly to that mindset. And here's what he says. Do not worry saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. When we follow Christ, what we recognize is that if we pursue after our life and liberty and happiness on our own terms, we're ultimately not, we're going to miss out on all of them. But when we serve Christ, when we pursue His kingdom, then we get life that truly lasts, freedom, liberty that is truly free, and happiness that truly endures. So we pursue the kingdom of God and His righteousness first, because it is actually the only true way to find life, liberty, and happiness. So I am absolutely, I rejoice that I have the ability to decide for myself how I'm going to find life, liberty, and happiness, and I choose to find them in Christ. That's what we're called to. In Colossians, Paul says this, Now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, in this image of God, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. See, what he's doing is he's calling us to a mission of, of, of restoring Having the image of God restored in us, because we all bear the image of God, but we have done our best to shatter it. We are all broken mirrors, and the gospel is the power of God to put that mirror back together. But putting a mirror back together means it reflects more accurately, right? It means that it is a clearer image, and we're supposed to be moving into a clearer image of God. And so what we pursue is not entitlements or anything like that, but we pursue godliness to look more like Jesus Christ every day, to be more focused on Jesus Christ every day, so that ultimately we are so focused on Him that that's all that ultimately really matters. And when we look around and we see people made in the image of God, that's what we see in them. That's the most important thing that we see in a person is we see Christ in them. And Christ is what we care about, and Christ is what we pursue, and He is at the very center of everything. That is what it means. That is what it means to follow Christ and to bear His image. And that's what we're called to. And the most countercultural thing I can tell you about pursuing His image, pursuing Jesus Christ uh, as a means to life, liberty, and happiness, is that pursuing godliness may require that we give up our life, liberty, and happiness for the sake of the kingdom. This is one of the most countercultural things you could tell an American is that they may have to give up some one of their entitlements for the sake of what is right or for the sake of another person. And one of the most countercultural things you can do is be willing to give that up. But the truth is that you may be called to give those things up for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus has a series of encounters with people while he's on the road in his ministry. And as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. 
Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. What he is saying is that following Jesus could cost you anything. It could cost you everything. And that's what it's worth. And so if we're truly following Jesus and putting him first, that means we may be asked to give up our life, our liberty, our happiness. It is possible that God will call you to give up your life for his kingdom. It is possible he will ask you to give up your liberty for his kingdom. It is almost a certainty, it is a certainty that in some way he's going to ask you to give up some temporary happiness for the sake of his kingdom. And that's what following him means, is being willing to make these sacrifices for the kingdom. And so the thing that we must not get sucked into is any attitude of this entitlement that these are the things that belong to me that God's never going to take away from me. That's not, that's not the attitude that we're called to. That's not what it means to follow Jesus. Now, the reason I am saying all of this is because I want us to be clear on who we are as Christians, as followers of Christ, so that we can go out and celebrate and watch fireworks and eat hot dogs and do all the things that we love to do on the 4th of July in a way that is faithful, because I believe that is absolutely possible, and I think it's a great way to spend today. What does that look like to be faithful in our patriotism? It's to keep this message clear, to keep this identity clear, and to celebrate our heritage in the ways that it reflects this. So, let me give you a couple of examples of what I think that can look like. First of all, we can rejoice that the Declaration of Independence reflects the biblical witness to the value of every human being. It reflects it. It is not the exact same thing, but it is inspired by that, and it actually calls us to something greater. See, I think as Americans, sometimes, you know, there are parts of us that might regret the words that were written in the Declaration of Independence because we have always been a work in progress on actually applying them and living them out. And for me, you know, so for, the, for our lazy moments, we wish we hadn't lifted up such high ideals 245 years ago because it's been a, it's a long road in actually living up to them. For me, on the 4th of July, what I actually think and kind of celebrate more than 1776 is 1863. There are a couple of important battles that happened in this time in June in, or July in the Civil War. The Battle of Gettysburg, Vicksburg. And that was a turning point in a battle for the soul of this nation and for the meaning of these words. Are we as good as the words that we laid down when, we, when this document was passed? That's what that war was fought over. We have struggled to live out these words. They call us to something higher. And that is a good thing that those are in our DNA. And that that is part of who we are called to be and who we are striving to be as a people, even those who don't know where that attitude actually comes from. We can celebrate that and be glad for it and be dedicated to it, to realizing that in a real way. And as Christians, we should take that as a, you know, we want to ultimately realize the image of God in every person. The next thing is that we can be grateful for the freedom we have to pursue the kingdom of God. This is something we talk a lot about when we, when we, talk, when we get to patriotic holidays, you know, being thankful for our freedoms. And, and this is common language, and I think it's, it's valuable. That gratitude is very, very important here. Because as Americans, we have so much more than most other Christians throughout the world and throughout history. We are so incredibly blessed. The fact that I don't have to worry about there being a government agent somewhere in here listening to my sermon and reporting back to some authority that I said the wrong thing. That is a blessing that we have. 
The fact that we're allowed to own property and to gather it all. The fact that we don't have to be told what denomination our church is going to be because the government is, you know, they, they are this denomination and we have to be that too. Like, there are so many freedoms that we take for granted that are incredible blessings. We also live in a place where we have amazing health care, where we have amazing security, where we don't have to worry about, you know, warlords coming in and destroying the country. Like, so much that we are, uh, so many blessings that we have. And it's important when we recognize those to recognize them with gratitude. Because we're not entitled to any of them. God put us here by His grace, and, and these are blessings to us. And so we need to be grateful. Because when we recognize them as gifts rather than entitlements, then it reminds us what they're for. Because we were not put here in America to receive all these amazing blessings and just bask in them ourselves. That is not why you're here. That is not why God gives us anything. God doesn't call anybody to be the cul-de-sac in the road of His grace. We are all called to be through thoroughways, freeways. It needs to flow through us, right? This is what Paul says. He's talking about a different kind of freedom here, but it still applies. In Galatians, he says, "My brother, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. We aren't given our freedom or our privilege to simply bask in it and receive it and enjoy it and swim in our money pit like squeezing a duck. We, sorry, James loves that show. Uh, <laughs> we are called to share every blessing that we have. And when American Christians are at their best, this is what we do. I've mentioned this before. You know, America, uh, the church in America routinely outgives the federal government in disaster aid. When there's a natural disaster, it's, there are more church representatives on the ground and there is more church money being invested than it, federal workers or federal money. The amount that, that American Christians put into worldwide missions is astounding. That is when we are at our best, is when we use our resources, our blessings for other people. And, and that starts with gratitude to recognize today we are celebrating gifts that we've been given that we don't deserve, that we're not entitled to, but that God gave us for a purpose. That is a blessing, that is an honor, and that is a mission that we are called to. So let us say thank you today, a profound thank you to God for all of those blessings. And let us be dedicated to using those blessings for His kingdom. I believe if we can keep that attitude in mind, we can celebrate faithfully, we can celebrate joyfully, we can be proud, we can be happy, we can have a great 4th of July, and that's what I hope for all of us. Now, as we get ready to close, I'm sorry, there's one more. <laughs> you're, you're waiting for the blanks, aren't you? We must use our freedom to serve the kingdom, not ourselves. That's the point we're landing on. Serve the kingdom, not ourselves. Now, as we, as we close and as the, the worship team comes up, um, I'm going to invite you to respond. Each week, we invite you to respond in a few different ways. The first way you can respond is to give your life to Jesus. Why would you give your life to Jesus? Because it is in Jesus that we find that absolute value that I was talking about. Every other place we are being compared, we are being measured and weighed, and every one of us has a way that we are found wanting. There's a way that we don't measure up. That's why we confess, Right? Because we can say, everybody in here has got something. And yet, that image of God that we are given gives us absolute value, and you will find that in Christ. So, today is the best day for you to find and experience that value by giving your life to Jesus Christ. 
Maybe you're looking for a community to be a part of as you follow Christ and you want to know more about this church and what it means, what we do and how you can be a part of us. That's what a Connect class is for. So you can check a box on your Connect card if you'd like to come to one of our Connect classes and we can, uh, we can talk to you about what it looks like to get plugged in here. If you're interested in baptism, if you're interested in membership, or just any way of getting plugged in. You can also tell us that you'd like to join a small group. This is where we get into communities of people who go through life together, who, who work out these challenges and work out these lines that we need to walk and, and do all of this together. We encourage you to join a small group. And finally, if you're looking for a way to give back what you've been blessed with, you can check the box and join one of our service teams. We have a lot of different ways you can get, you can serve through this church, whether you're serving others in the congregation or serving people in our community or serving people in the world, across the world, around the world. It's a circle. It's a, it's a, you can serve, and you just check that box, and, and we will get you, get you plugged in somewhere. So I encourage you to make the, one of those decisions. If you want to give your life to Jesus, you can check the box and we'll talk with you, or you can just come running up during the song. We'd love to celebrate that with you now. Uh, so please stand and join us as we sing our final song. <laughs>